0: Hello, everyone. Uh, if you're here in the right place, we're talking about uh, e- Amazon ECR, and we're going to do a deep dive on image optimization. Now, just to get started, um, what to expect in this session? So uh, we're going to go over sort of how Docker images are built so you can really understand and make better educated decisions on optimizing your own image builds. I'm going to assume a fair amount of familiarity, since it's a 400-level talk with Docker and ECR and ECS. Um, I'm going to have a lot of, like, content in my slides here. I'm going to make sure that I go through so you can see a little bit, but um, these slides are also going to be available afterwards so you can sort of step through all the commands and follow through again. So really, uh, the goal is to sort of educate you here and see how Docker images are built, composed, so, and how the registry API works. Um, we're also going to talk a little bit about CI, CD best practices, and then Mal's going to come up here to talk a little bit about e- ECR learnings uh, and best practices that, that they have at Pinterest. So a little bit about me. Uh, I work for AWS in the EC2 Container Registry. Uh, I've been at Amazon for over 10 years, and I've worked on a lot of different teams. Uh, I worked on the retail marketplace team, Amazon Local, uh, Amazon Restaurants, and then I've been with EC2 for uh, uh, about two years now. Uh, I really like sort of understanding how things work, taking them apart, putting them back together. And so I'm also really passionate about containers and sort of what they allow for developers uh, and, and what, what they allow you to do. Um, and I've worked on the container registry since it launched, so I have a pretty good understanding, and uh, low-level understanding of uh, how it actually all fits together. Now, if you're not familiar, uh, Amazon EC2 Container Ma- Registry is a fully managed, highly available, and secure uh, Docker-compatible container registry. Um, it allows you to sort of drop in with your existing Docker commands. If you're doing Docker pushes and pulls. It all implements the API, so you don't have to worry about it. But it's also available. Uh, we're in nine different regions today. Um, and also integrates with things like IAM uh, and resource policies so that way you can secure and really lock things down. Um, we also provide CloudTrail integration and a number of the others. So it really is uh, a, Docker, uh, a Docker registry that's designed to work best with AWS. Now, a lot of the tips that I'm going to give today, uh, while they're true for most, uh, most registries and most container images, uh, these are, will also hold true for ECR. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, how uh, Docker images are constructed and how they work. So first up, uh, Docker images themselves are packaged application code, binaries, um, and they really basically provide you a portable way of having your build software go to production. So one of the common problems that a lot of customers have had before and software developers have had for a long time is making sure that that reproducible build that you had on your desktop works in production. even down to sort of complex build systems that have had before in the past, even things like, you know, LD library paths um, and shared dependencies can cause a lot of problems. Um, And even down in sort of a lot of modern teams, we end up having, uh, you know, multiple languages implemented on the same host, uh, multiple, like, dependent libraries, uh, different SSL versions, even down to glibc. Now, Docker allows you to build portable images that can actually go... Uh, from, from a host, a base host to base host without having to worry about those. You know exactly what happened in development and what you had is exactly what you have in production. So Docker images themselves are actually comprised of layers. Um, layers are uh, immutable. They're read-only. Um, they actually hold both file data and configuration data for each, uh, each part that makes up an image. Uh, in this case, uh, this is a Hello! reInvent example. Um, it's tagged latest, and you can see that it has three layers. Now, each layer, because of Docker's union file system, will override the contents of the previous at runtime. So if you have a file in the top in the top layer, the next layer below it, if it has the same file, it'll override that file and use it instead. Uh, this is sort of what allows you to sort of build and compose those to create that image. Now, a running container is a Docker image that's being executed that has a container layer that's read-write. Um, this actually holds the container data Uh, At runtime, And then when it exits, you can either save that intermediate layer or have it cleaned up. Now, and this is actually how Docker images themselves are built inside Docker. So you run a blank image. uh, You go ahead and you execute some code. It saves that read-write file system with a a content-addressable hash. And then it adds it to the layer. So we can see later as we go through some build examples, when you're actually building, you're just using containers but using this uh, directly would be kind of cumbersome. So uh, the Dockerfile syntax is what really allows you to sort of express your image uh, in a nice, uh, clean format. Um, you can see that more or less uh, a lot of the lines in uh, a Dockerfile can usually correspond to a layer, uh, one or more layers. So in this case, uh, we have an Alpine layer, which is a base layer. Um, this is a Linux uh, base image that we're starting from. It only has a single layer, so it's one, but you could think that this, if this points to say, an Ubuntu image or, or uh, a language-specific v- v- version like Java or Ruby that actually have m- might have multiple layers. Um, I have a maintainer line here and a command line as well. So looking at that a little closer, again, we have a from, a from build that we have. We have a maintainer line which just is putting metadata about who sort of who owns and runs this and manages this image for other developers to see. And then we have an actual command. In this case, it's just echoing hello reInvent. Now, when we actually run our docker build command, we can sort of look at that output and see what's happening. We can see that it's running from Alpine, it's adding the extra maintainer, it's removing the intermediate container after it runs, it's it's setting up the command for hello reinvent and running it again. Now, each of those cases, it's running those intermediate containers and then cleaning up afterwards. And that's sort of important. Um, Those those, uh, temporary read-write layers are then removed, and you have basically your image built that you can push anywhere you want. Now, we can actually use the Docker history command to inspect that image. So you can see this actually goes from top to bottom. It's actually set, uh, uh, it's backwards from what uh, the layer, the order has been built. But you can see the bottom layer actually has the add file, and that's a 4 meg uh, layer. That is a very, you know, Alpine is a very lightweight, small Linux distribution as a base. And then we have the maintainer line and then the command line. Now, you'll notice that while the base layer is is 4 megs, uh, the sizes for each of the the other config layers are actually 0 bytes. Since there isn't any file system data that needs to be required for those, they're just configuration, it actually isn't preserved along with it. So they end up being empty, what we call empty layers. Uh, We'll see a little bit more about that later. So we can also look at our history for Alpine, and we can see it's actually the same as the top layer that we had before. Uh, It's the same immutable thing. So if I can have something that's based off of an existing image, Uh, That's actually the exact same history. So if I base uh, all of my images off of, say, Alpine, I know that that common layer can be used across different images on my host when I pull in production. So coming up with a common base layer that you're using for all of your container instances, if they follow a similar pattern or stack, can actually help uh, make a lot of portability in production. But it may depend on your varying workloads because you may have different teams that have different dependencies and needs and rely on different distributions. Now, if we want to make a code change, we can go ahead and we've made a change to our Docker file. In this case, we're just adding some hearts to our echo command, um, and we're gonna rebuild. Now, we'll notice in this particular case, um, it was actually able to use the build cache. So here we can see that rather than running the intermediate container, saving the state and exiting, it's actually going to use that cache layer. So Docker, in this case, noticed that uh, the, the maintainer line hadn't been changed, so it was able to not have to execute that command initialize another container really sort of understanding and optimizing how build caches are used are really going to help you in your build and CI-CD systems. In this particular case, our command did change, so it knows that that's invalidated and has to rerun that build layer. And it runs it there. So now that we have uh, a kind of a basic understanding of uh, of images, we can talk about how we can actually improve on some image builds. Um, We're going to go through a couple examples here uh, just to get started. So first, this is a simple Ruby application. Uh, We're picking Ruby 2.3. It has some gem file dependencies. Uh, We're going to go ahead and bundle those up and then add our application code. Now, the first thing we notice is that we're setting Ruby 2.3. You really want to sort of isolate down a specific base package version, because if you just say Ruby latest, it could be that one developer is running a build on one desktop, another developer is running it in the CI system. It ends up grabbing a different version of Ruby. So I would even recommend going further than this and actually pinpointing down to a specific patch version or minor version just to keep consistency. Uh, The next thing is we're adding our gem file and our gem file lock. And in a Ruby application, all of your dependencies are sort of defined ahead of time. So your gem file, uh, while it has the high-level dependencies, the gem file lock has all of your fully resolved downstream dependencies. So that way, if I build my image, uh, regardless of where I'm I'm building it, I'm getting the exact same gems installed. I'm adding my source code after that, and then I'm running my my simple hello. Looking at our gem file, we just have a a colorized gem. So we're just using a simple gem here. The gem file lock will actually, at uh, sort of build time and checking into your source code, will actually have a very specific version of colorize. Looking at our source code, we're just going to sort of say hello world, but we're going to give it a little more flair this time. We're going to give it some colors. And we're using the colorized gem to give us some, some fun ASCII. Now, going through our build step in our container, we can see that it's actually adding our gem file lock. It's doing our bundle install. And it's doing that bundle install on the container instead of on my host. Um, it's actually going going to go down to RubyGems, download my gems, uh, uh, and build that, uh, build those into the build cache. So we can see in the user local bundle is actually where it's stored inside that container image. And then later, it adds my application code. We can see that, again, it's going to remove the intermediate containers as it's being built. There's the add for our source code. And if we actually run it, we can see we finally get some nice colorized output. And Let's say we want to make a code change in this particular case. We want to add some more hearts, again, to our, our ASCII output. And so we've made that code change down there at the bottom. And we have, But we haven't changed any of our gem dependencies. None of our build dependencies have really changed. We rerun our build, and we can see in this case it's actually able to cache the gem file lock, and the bundle install, which means I didn't have to re-download gems from my for from my build instance. Now this is a tip really here of just separating those build time from your actual like uh, your actual build uh, based on your actual application code. Most teams end up having uh, a lot more change of their application code than they do on their build dependencies, so being able to really sort of separate these will allow you to sort of optimize on those build, build caches. And because our code has actually changed, in this particular case it's going to have to rerun, but it only has to rerun on that last layer run our Hello! reInvent again. This time we get our hearts in, in nice color. And so the, the takeaways here that I really want you to co- go away with is uh, sticking to specific versions of base layers allow to give stability from developer to developer and give you consistent builds. It also means that at deployment time, uh, you if you sort of opt into those new versions of, say, your base layer, like Ruby, for example, you know that if you're moving from, say, 2, 3, to 2.4 to 2, or to three zero, you know when that's going to happen, and that means only those new layer, base layers are going to be deployed at that particular point in time. Most deployments are going to be fairly small because they're just adding a Ruby code that's changed. So separating your application code from its dependencies really helps you sort of optimize what you're actually building and deploying. So next up, we're going to walk through a bit of a Go example. In this particular case, again, I'm going to try to pick a a specific version. We're using Go 1.7, but you could get more specific down there to a minor version. We're going to actually add our source code and run our Go build inside of our container. Or actually, Go code is just going to say hello, world. Again, not something super crazy exciting, but I'm sure your applications are going to be a little bit more advanced. And In this case, we're actually going to go ahead and building our container. Now, when we run uh, our actual application, we get our hello, so we know it works. And let's look at our actual images output. So this is kind of surprising. Uh, go is a compiled language, uh, and so you should have a really small binary at the end of this. But we actually end up having a 674 megabyte layer or image. And that's kind of surprising uh, because, you know, it seems that we'd be able to have a binary much smaller than that, and it seems like a lot to sort of build and push all the way out to production. So we can go back to our history command and actually inspect and see sort of what, what happened here. And in this particular case, we're gonna run our history command, and we're gonna see all these layers that are coming from. So this all comes from the Go 1.7 base layer, and so all of the things that are above, uh, uh, and again, these, these go from sort of top to bottom, are everything that you sort of brought in as a part of the Go 1.7. And we can see we first have these apt-get updates and apt-get installs, and that's actually getting all of the build essentials that are required for Go itself to be compiled. Then we actually have all of the Go, the go source code downloaded, which is another 200 megs, And then we finally have our binary after all of those builds. So our binary itself is less than 2 megs, but we have all of these other things that are required for that particular container. So this is sort of the next sort of tip that I'd like to sort of provide you, is really sort of understanding that, you know, at runtime, you don't necessarily need everything that you need at build time. And while build isolation is great, you really need to sort of figure out a way of isolating these two. And the way that I would recommend, and the way that we've used at ECS as well, is actually uh, isolating build versus runtime containers. Our agent itself uh, builds in this format, so, um, which is fully open source, and you can check it out as well. So looking at our... Uh, this is going to be our build container. It looks similar from before, except for we have a volume mount, uh, and we then copy our binary instead of actually running it. So we're using a volume mount to then sort of copy what we need our artifacts out. You can imagine if this was another application, you could do the same, whatever kind of resources, even if it was, say, compressed gzipped uh, JavaScript or whatever resources or artifacts that your application needs at, at, at production time. So our build container, our runtime container here, is actually pretty small. It has from scratch, which is an actually an empty base image that has nothing in it, and we're adding our binary, and then we're just running it. So it only contains that our binary it needs at runtime. It's a static build. That's it. So we're gonna rerun our build, which looks like we had before. It actually builds in our build time container. And we'll notice the differences here is we're adding a volume. And the actual command to copy is to copy the actual uh, actual binary out of the image. So now we can actually copy that artifact out by doing a Docker run. So we're doing a volume out locally. We're running the container. And all we're really doing is saying, oh, let's take this binary from inside this container and copy it out. And then lastly, now we're running our runtime container, we're actually gonna go ahead and just add that binary. Now, the great thing as well here is we're, we're still getting that build level of isolation, which means I could actually be on a host that doesn't even have Go installed. I can run a nice sanitized build, and then I can add all of my artifacts to a separate container that's, run, that's pushed at runtime. So we know it still works. We have rerun our command. We get our hello reinvent. But now we're only down to less than two megs in our layer. And we only have two, we have two layers and we only have one me- or, two- or two megs for our actual binary application. So now, instead of every single deploy having to deploy that entire stack, I've got a much, much smaller binary. That's really going to make things a lot better at both your CI system having to push all the way up to your registry, as well as download from the registry as well at deployment time. So we've got that, again, two megs there. So the overall tips here is just trying to figure out what you actually need at runtime versus what you need at build time. Uh, you know, again, Docker provides a great level of build isolation, so you can ensure that you've got that portable images, and they're, they're very much isolated from those dependencies. But separating out that from your build and runtime container is actually gonna improve your, uh, improve your pull and push times. And uh, there are applications where, like, this is a static example where, you know, you have a binary, which could work cool for any sort of statically compiled language, but uh, dynamic languages work for this as well. If you have a rail stack, for example, you might want to package up all your JavaScript or image assets or your CSS assets. You don't necessarily need that compression to be that, that sort of JavaScript engine to come with you at runtime. You could actually separate it out uh, at build time and then just package those up for serving later. So these are some of the advanced tips that I don't, have enough, unfortunately, have enough time to, to cover today, uh, but I'll leave with you as sort of a, a bit of a homework assignment. So the first thing is uh, you can build your own base images. It's actually quite easy. Um, base images are what we saw before. We're sort of using Alpine. We used Go. Now, you could have a normal Docker image that gets built, but you could also sort of create your own base layer by creating a local tarball and then importing it. Um, this can be really good if you have want to set a common base layer for your entire company. If, like, you have, say, a base distribution with common packages that you know everyone is going to use, you're kind of trying to unify that stack across things. And that'll mean that if you know that that base layer is pushed across all of your build fleet, uh, it's gonna make things much better. And on top of that, uh, in Docker 1.13, now this is in the RC, uh, so it will, when when Docker 1.13 goes uh, goes, uh, finalized, there's actually a squash layer. There's a squash command now. So that allows you to sort of take multiple of those sort of smaller layers and squash them down into a single layer to reduce overhead of having to do lots of smaller pulls. Now, you'll have to be careful with this uh, because you could inval- and end up invalidating those other layers. There are cases in which ca- if you're then taking all of your base layers for your base image and adding your application code, you're squashing it to a single one, now you're pulling the entire image every single time. So you can't really take advantage of that layer-level caching on your deployment hosts. So now that we have an idea of how we can sort of build and optimize our images, we'll talk a little bit how the Docker Registry v2 API works. Um, again, uh, ECR understands and responds and works with this ECR, uh, th- this API. Um, so if we understand how this API actually works between the Docker engine and our registry, we can actually then look at how optimizing our layers and images can actually improve. So the first thing is pulling an image. When we do a Docker pull, uh, you provide a registry URI. In, our, in this particular case for, uh, for ECR, you're gonna use your, your, your specific registry URL. Um, And, you know, because you can provide this URL with others, it's unique to your account. You provide your image name and your tag. Now, so the Docker daemon, when you tell this, uh, the command's going to hit the daemon, and the daemon's going to say, well, first we need to fetch this image of this particular tag, and for each layer I don't happen to have on the host, I need to go ahead and download it. So translating that to HTTP calls, it does an HTTP get for slash v2 image name manifest tag, and then for each layer that it doesn't have locally, it's a get v2 image name blobs digest. So this is really important. So if I already have a layer on my host, I don't actually have to download it. If I've already cached that sort of base you know if I'm using Alpine, if I've already cached that base Alpine image on every single one of my my hosts in my ECS fleet, I don't actually have to download that base layer anymore, and I'm just deploying the latest bit of my application code. And really kind of like tuning in uh, tuning in those will will sort of really help your deployments go much, much faster. Oh and uh, as a quick note on Docker 110 and above. Uh, it actually pulls these layers in parallel. So uh, that's something to sort of look at as well, sort of upgrading at least to that version. We'll give you an idea. So that means it can pull those layers concurrently. Um, You'll still be stuck for the the longest layer. So if you have, for some some reason, you have one very, very large layer, you're still gonna wait on that last layer to pull before it can actually start running. Um, But again, uh, being able to pull lots of small layers concurrently helps quite a bit. Now, pushing an image is exactly the opposite. We're gonna do a Docker push, registry URL that you have locally, image name and tag. But the Docker daemon has to do a little bit more work here. For each layer, it has to see, does that layer exist already on the registry? And if it does, if it doesn't, then it needs to initiate a layer upload, send the actual data, and then set, set that it's complete. And when all of those layers are done, it needs to sort of push the manifest, saying that the layers are complete. Translating this to the API perspective, we can see it's just doing a head check. It's doing a post to initialize the upload. It's doing a patch to actually send out that binary contents for the layer. And then it's doing a put to finalize uh, each individual layer. Now, again, from Docker 110 and above, it can actually parallelize these uploads and kind of speed things up. So now we're gonna... We, we have an image that's actually been pushed. We're gonna actually... or no, we have an image that we understand how the APIs work. We're gonna actually go through a whole push scenario uh, with sort of ECR here and see how it works. Now, we're going to first, we need to sort of get a temporary set of credentials that we can use to work with ECR. Um, we're going to go ahead and get an authorization token. And then we can actually get the, that out of the result data here, as well as getting the endpoint that we want to talk to. Uh, I'm going to use a little bit of JQ here to do some of the, the JavaScript parsing. Now I want to fetch out my username and password. Uh, that token that we had before was actually just a Base64 encoded uh, username and temporary password. Um, this is, comes back in an HTTP digest format, which is normally sent back and forth. Um, but for our purposes, we want to separate that because we're doing a Docker login. Uh, we use a Docker login. We provide that username and password to our ECR URL that we saved before. And, you know, because this is probably a little bit more cumbersome to do on a regular basis, this is actually what the ECR's get login command does uh, under the scene. So you can actually go to the, the CLI open source and see it pretty much does the same thing, except for it's written in Python instead of Bash. Uh, and uh, base64-d, uh, this is what it is on your Mac. So if you're running on Linux, I think it's a, a lowercase d. So now we're going to go ahead and create an, a, a repository here on ECR. So we're going to go ahead and create our hello. We're going to go back to our original example that we had before that we had built. Um, and we're going to save off that image URI so we know exactly what uh, URL, URI to sort of provide when we're actually going to tag our image. And uh, once you're done this exercise, I'd say you can go back and delete that repository Uh, We provide a force command. This is just so if you're deleting a repository and you have images that you haven't deleted, we we sort of don't let you unless you pass the force. It's really just sort of a safety mechanism to make things a little bit easier. Now, pushing an image, we're going to go ahead and tag that hello back to our image URI and just do a push. Now that we have that image pushed, we can see, well, what does that manifest actually look like? So we can actually do a curl here with that username and password. It's going to set the HTTP digest on the request go back to our URL, we're gonna go back to that uh, manifest latest. So that's hello is the, the, the image name, and latest is the tag, and we're gonna save that back out to a JSON file so we can use it later. Um, we can start to see the beginning of this JSON file, and that's all an image really is. It's just a JSON file with data. Uh, it's gonna store the... in this particular case, it's showing its schema one. Uh, currently ECR supports uh, uh, manifest schema one. Uh, we're gonna be supporting schema tune very shortly. You can see that uh, this has our image name and our tag inside of it, as well as the architecture. next through the file, uh, you can actually see the blob sums, so those are actually refer back to those tars that we saw before those 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 bo- those blobs and you'll actually notice that the top two actually have the same number. this A3 e d95CAE is actually an empty layer. so there's no actual content it's just an empty tar, tar gz. Um, and the last one itself is our Alpine layer. So that was our config and run command that we saw before. This is sort of how you could see what they are. Now, uh, in uh, newer versions of the Docker, again, the schema 2, it actually removes these config layers and changes the configuration to a separate layer itself that holds all of that data. Um, but schema 1 is still preserved here. Now this is definitely hard to read, but looking at the history, we can see this v1 compatibility. So now we're actually going to see the Docker container config for every single layer. Now this is JSON inside of JSON, but you can usually parse this out if you kind of want to see what's going on or if you squint really, really hard. But this is our last layer that actually did our echo, echo hello world. And also because it's the final layer, it has all the runtime configuration that your container needs. So it sets your, you know, your environment variables, your path, whether or not you have a TTY. This is all your runtime configuration just sort of stored in the image. Um, And you'll also notice that it has, uh, if you can see it from here, uh, we probably see it in the next slide a little bit better. There we go. So these are the other two layers. Uh, The maintainer line is the first one we see on the top there. It's a little easier to understand uh, slightly. Uh, You can see that it has this container config line. See that command maintainer line there where it has my name? So that's actually how the Docker history command can actually look back at that manifest and see how each layer was built. So you actually go back to a manifest and say, like, well, where did this come from? And in this particular case, all it does is add a config line that says my author is my name, and it's a throwaway layer because it's just a config-based layer. The last layer we can see here uh, doesn't have any configuration other than showing the container config on how it was built, and that's because our Alpine layer is just is just the actual Alpine uh, binary that we need to actually run uh, our base image. Now, lastly, we have a signature here. Uh, In schema one, signatures can be added inside of the the manifest file. Um, The actual... uh, this means that the signed manifest as a part of there is all in here. In later versions of, of Docker, that schema is actually... that signature is actually brought outside the manifest, which is a little bit nicer, and it's moved into Notary. So now that we have our manifest file saved, let's go ahead and download the layers. Uh, We're going to use a little bit more JQ, which is pretty much my helper for most things. Um, I'm going to pipe that out to a file, and then we're going to do some curl uh, with some Xargs, and we're going to key download each one of those layers. Um, If you give a dash P and a number command too, you can parallelize download pro-Xargs tip for anyone. Um, But the dash L here is also important because that's actually allowing us to follow redirects. So from ECR, we actually provide uh, pre-signed URLs down to Docker so it can download your images directly from S3. This ensures that you get the best performance because at this point, you're going directly to S3 to actually download everything. And we're saving those blobs out disk, and again, we're providing our credentials the way we did before. Now, looking at our layers, we only actually have two that downloaded because two are are the same or that empty layer. Um, And we have our 2.2 megs because these are actually gzipped as well. And we can actually just look at them man, if you want to, you can just untar them. Uh, this is, there's not a lot of magic here. This is just Unix. So you can actually see that uh, I'm not going to show you the entire contents of Alpine. That might be a little boring. But uh, we can see that uh, we have the busybox binary and we have a bunch of symlinks. That's just because it's a small distro. So I've used this trick quite a bit when I look at a layer and it's way bigger than what I expected. So I'll download it. I'll extract it. I'll see actually what's inside and say, oh, I didn't actually realize that simple command was adding so much, uh, so much to my, my actual runtime layer. And our empty layer is, in fact, an empty layer. (laughs) There's nothing in it. It's just just a little 4-kilobyte empty targz. Again, uh, at least with uh, the newer versions, uh, this isn't actually sort of transferred. But usually on your host, this is cached pretty quickly. It's only pulled down once uh, so it can get that, uh, that empty layer. So the takeaways now that we kind of understand how our APIs work, is that really reducing your number of layers means this reduces the number of uploads and downloads that you have. And reducing the actual contents reduces that upload-download time. And every single time you minimize those layer changes themselves, we can actually reduce some faster deployments. So you know if that one last smaller layer is the only thing you've changed your application, and you're deploying very, very frequently in your CI system, um, you're going to get much faster deployments if you just spend a little bit of time going through uh, your Docker images and figuring out what's, what's going on in there. So talking of CI-CD, so going through a little bit of the best practices here, um, we're gonna sort of talk about some some tips that we've learned from talking to a lot of our customers. Uh, the first thing is come up with a good tagging scheme. Uh, a lot of customers might use Latest or Stable or Prod. Um, one of the problems with that is it means it's really hard to sort of stage out your changes. So if I'm using Stable and I'm using ECS, it may sort of just go ahead and start using that in my task definition. So we really recommend, as a part of your build system, creating a logical sort of version for every single build that you make, uh, and ideally, if you can tie it back to your artifacts, then you can sort of trace that all the way through your production system. So you drag it back to your source code or maybe your Jenkins build identifier. You can know where that actual artifact came from. And that means you can actually stagger your deployments. So if you're using ECS, we'd recommend creating a new task definition in your family, updating your service definition, and then allowing that to sort of gradually roll out. And if you're really interested in blue-green deployments, then what we'd recommend is creating a second service with a new task definition, and using ELB, uh, creating, a new, uh, creating a new ALB, and then using Route 53 to wait over. So the CI CD tips that we really have here is the build caches that we mentioned before. So not having to rerun the bundle install means that we can actually uh, take advantage of that here. So being able to sort of rerun in the same build hosts means you're actually going to take advantage of what was already on that host before. You don't have to re-download those gems every single time. And of course, reducing your builds to image, uh, image sizes is gonna actually, and reduce the number of layers, is gonna actually reduce how much you have to transfer back up to ECR. And, of course, uh, we are in nine regions today, so building and pushing in the same region as possible is actually gonna make things much, much, much better. Um, that way you don't have to do any sort of cross-region pushes. So next up, uh, we're gonna have Mal come up here, and he's gonna talk a little bit about ECR and their usage at Pinterest. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Scott. Um, Make my speaker a little larger. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. Um, first of all, um, a little bit uh, about me. Um, my name is uh, Mao Gan. I'm working for Pinterest uh, as a site reliability engineer. Um, I came from a background of a traditional enterprise software developer in Oracle Database and Java EE land for years. Uh, Then I became a performance engineer in a SaaS company. Um, Two years ago, I switched to to the SRE role. Um, And I'm excited about cloud and uh, uh, container technologies. Uh, I'm focusing on putting things into containers since I joined Pinterest. Today, I'm very happy to have the chance to share, share you about uh, a, a few stories and the tips and the lessons we learned at Pinterest uh, when running container in AWS. Um, for people who hasn't uh, heard of Pinterest, uh, we are the catalog of ideas around the world. Um, user use Pinterest website or apps to share and discover uh, various ideas uh, of their interests uh, and often get inspired by amazing ideas to do something awesome in in their real lives. And recently, we achieved 100 million million weekly active users um, and half of them are from outside of the United States. So these are very big. uh, milestones for us. Um, you can also see we have a tremendous amount of data, uh, like uh, pins, balls of many users. Um, we store all of them in AWS. Um, yeah. A little bit of history is um, Pinterest was built on top of AWS since it was built um, at uh, 2010. Um, now we grow a lot, of course, and uh, nowadays we are running tens of thousands EC2 instances. And also we have over 100 petabyte data in S3, um, which cannot even be packed into one small mobile check. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Um, so f- when I'm talking about containers, Actually, I often mean Docker. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I expect many audience here uh, already know some information about Docker. So I won't uh, elaborate uh, many benefits of Docker here. Um, so I will explain at Pinterest uh, the major reason for us to adopting Docker. Um, from the beginning of this year um, is, uh, because we found Docker is a better tool uh, to build, ship, and run services uh, for internal Pinterest services in a much, much more reliable way. Um, That's what advertise, uh, advocate, uh, advertised by the Docker company. But uh, to be honest, Uh, It's true, because the experienced, experienced docker build, um, it's uh, very helpful for for developers. Um, I think um, so far, the docker image probably is the best format for everyone, every developer, to build and ship their services and run in anywhere. It's uh, innovation which disrupted many, many traditional tools. For example, apt-get or configuration tool like Puppet or other things. Sorry if you are (laughs) a Puppet lover, but yeah, that's my opinion. Um, Pinterest uh, actually is a heavy user of Puppet. um, For instance, profiling um, and and. um, and the service configuration. Um, it played a big role in Pinterest's growth turnout. now. Uh, however, um, we also accumulated many, um, um, many issues because we have a big shared puppet repo for everything, uh, which now becomes uh, kind of cranky and, uh, um, Cause many issues from time to time. So Docker, fortunately, addressed the issues very well um, because it packages the dependencies into images as much as possible. Uh, hence, uh, it uh, uh, minimized the risk of provisioning and the configuration on the host. So um, first thing when I started to uh, working on Docker in Pinterest, is to find a reliable registry solution. Um, We picked ECR uh, because of several reasons. The first one is uh, I don't want to run or maintain own registry Um, (laughs) because uh, it takes efforts to run it stable and reliable and uh, keep it upgraded to back, where compatible with Docker client. Um, so I trust AWS, and uh, just like we trust other services in AWS. Uh, the second reason is uh, it's fast, it's performant, because uh, AWS provided uh, maybe the fastest uh, uh, access path for the ECR. Um, and uh, the third reason is uh, reliable, scalable. Um, as uh, Scott mentioned earlier, um, the docker pool actually use uh, uh URL to directly pull layers from S3, uh, and S3 we are very familiar and we trust it. It's no doubt reliable and and uh, scalable. Um, we did have a uh, small issues at the beginning when we used ECR, which is related to the get token um, request. Uh, but we resolved it quickly with the AWS kind of support, so it's n- non issue anymore. Um, then, then a of, of, of few. Usage um, I'd like to share with you is uh, firstly um, um, in Pinterest uh, we have many uh, development instances in EC2. Basically each developer in Pinterest has an EC2 instances which count contains all the dependency uh, and uh, basically each developer can run a local, uh, locally a Pinterest website uh, on their dev app instances. It was configured by Puppet, uh, but, yeah, as I mentioned, Puppet has so many uh, things together, and it's fragile. It's broken all the time. So we did one thing which uh, impacted many developers, which is we put all the developers' dev environment into the Docker image. Uh, And so now we have hundreds of dev incidents running Docker engine, and, uh, Developer use the Docker daily. The second usage is uh, um, uh, the Jenkins. We have hundreds of also Jenkins slaves to build the Docker image, test Docker image, and also um, push image, tag image. Um, the third usage is uh, the uh, Mac. Uh, de- some developer will use Mac uh, uh, Docker for Mac and. Uh, do some testing or development on their laptop. It's totally fun to work with ECR. Um, the fourth one is uh, the Mesos. Uh, we have a few Mesos clusters uh, running some Spark streaming jobs together with a few other things. Um, because of Mesos offered the Docker integration to run the container based on Docker image, and we like the Docker image, so we tried the integration with the ECR, and it works quite, quite well. Um, we can run multiple version of Spark binary um, using Docker image pretty well. Um, it's a better way to, to do the instance configuration. Um, and uh, the last one I'd like to mention is we have also several dockerized services are running in production. Um, they are in smaller scale, uh, just dozens of nodes, Uh, but uh, it works pretty well. Um, We use uh, an in-house deployment tool, which is called Teletron, and uh, it's also open-sourced on GitHub. Um, Basically, Teletron allows you to uh, write some shell script uh, to to deploy a service, um, which uh, sounds like a little bit uh, um, step back, from the configuration management tool puppet but actually we found it's a better way to to deploy container because um, the shell script is only service specific. It's not in a shared configuration repo for everything. Uh, the isolation it provided is much much better for microservices. Um, so we are using the Teletron to configure the host and. Uh, then use docker command to run container for these services <coughs> Next um, this is a sneak peek uh, of our is uh, r- repository and uh, Jenkins job directory we building house um, um, currently actually we have over twenty image repo uh, and uh, we use Jenkins to build and and, uh, test and tag, then push image into ECR. Uh, And we have a policy in-house which is uh, um, only Jenkins can push image onto ECR, Um, and the developer should not push image from their laptop or dev instances because they could mess it up. Um, Even you give a git commit ID as a tag for the image, it can still be override by someone, if you uh, don't know where. Um, And we have the GitHub, and uh, not GitHub, (laughs) Git repo, internally Git repo integration with Jenkins, so developer have a commit or or pull request can be, uh, can trigger a Jenkins uh, job uh, in a continuous integration way. Um, Yeah, it works pretty well. And in Jenkins, uh, we actually uh, lab just just use a plan shell script uh, to invoke the Docker commands um, to build some image. And also, we have some project use makefile to manage the uh, 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 image building by invoking the Docker commands. Uh, either way works. Mm. And, okay. Even we have very good um, experience about Docker, and we think it will help Pinterest in the future. We did uh, hit some Docker issues uh, at Pinterest. Um, the issues are mostly related to the storage driver or the underlying uh, file systems used by the uh, Docker engine. Um, For example, the the AUFS1, which is pretty savory. Um, uh, At the early days, we tried Docker. Um, We used kernel 3.18 at that time. By default, it is AUFS uh, storage driver. Uh, And uh, it uh, caused the issue which is uh, container cannot be stopped because it become a zombie process on the host. And uh, it's hard to fix, even restart the Docker engine. Um, then we, we, th- th- then we tried uh, other alternative uh, uh, storage drivers, for example, VFS, which is, which was also not good, because it can create huge, uh, it can occupy huge uh, space uh, on the varlib docker folder when you build a simple, <laughs> Image, so it's not in, in uh, it's not efficient to use at all. Um, then we switch to AUF, uh, overlays, uh, overlay and um, storage driver. Um, but we found overlay uh, also has problem. Uh, but the problem actually uh, are pretty easy to resolve by upgrading the kernel version to the, to a newer one. Uh, for example, the uh, uh, pip install fails issue, which blocked our, our Python um, project for a while, but uh, we found uh, the kernel 4.5 actually resolved it perfectly. And also similarly, the overlay file system with the Unix domain socket file, uh, which is supported in kernel 4.7, and also backported to kernel 4.4. Um, So, yeah, so now um, we are using um, the overlay uh, storage driver and we upgraded our current versions along the way several times um, to 4.8 now, which is pretty new. (laughs) And also we upgraded Docker engine uh, many times uh, from 1.7 to 1.12. Point three now. Um, um, so, to be honest, we didn't really uh, test the device mapper, uh, the FS or BTRFS, FS, some other storage drivers, uh, but we think overlay works fast, and that's good. So, um, a few tips. Um, first one is, uh, the storage driver actually is uh, very important for the stabi- uh, stability of your uh, Docker uh, services, um, but uh, um, you 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 may hit problem. Um, th- fortunately, uh, the the Docker community is very very hard, so you probably won't be the first one to hit the uh, issue you you uh, you, you hit. Um, somebody maybe already opened the issue on the GitHub, and uh, somebody f- figured out a uh, around, or the new version of kernel can perfectly resolve the issue. Actually, that, that's the case what we experienced. Every issue we hit has filed on GitHub, and uh, we can easily find a solution. So it's not blocking as long as you can um, work around all, all of these issues. Um, we will stick with overlay in Pinterest. And we, um, we, we heard overlay 2 will be the future default um, uh, storage driver for Docker engine, but we found it's uh, not as stable as uh, overlay yet. Um, So, uh, yeah, I I, I mentioned a little bit we are, we are running the kernel version 4.8 in-house. Yeah, we, we, we didn't find any problem when we upgrade the kernel version, actually. Um, I, I think it's amazing because uh, the, the genius work ha- has been done by Linux and uh, a large community of the kernel development team. Um, so the kernel upgrade actually is pretty uh, low risk, uh, and the, uh, it can bring a lot of benefits to you. Uh, not only the bug fix, but also some new features such as eBPF for profiling performance issue or something, um, which is awesome. So we we recommend you to, to use the newest uh, kernel as much as possible. And we, we, we don't suggest to upgrade Docker engine in place um, because we found uh, the Docker engine And upgrading will kill your running containers on the host, which probably not acceptable. And also, it might change some default options for the engine. Uh, Then also, you might not want it. So we bake the Docker engine into AMI, and uh, we test new AMI on your dev instance for a while, then switch the AMI to to the bigger, uh, um, uh, bigger scope. Then, yeah, to be honest, we use uh, the Docker engine basically uh, as an image to ship our binary. We are not using some fancy overlay network or some other advanced feature uh, which Docker engine want to provide. We just use Docker engine as a minimalized way. Um, And in that way, actually, we found the newer version of Docker engine is better. Because it fixed the issues and has a better support, better integration with the newer kernels. And another story I'd like to share is, uh, um, is maybe special for Pinterest because uh, Pinterest internally runs many microservices, but for historical reason, we still keep maintaining four major uh repos with Python, Java, C++, Golang, and uh, each repo has tons of dependencies. Um, it's not a problem for production because um, a- as Scott mentioned uh, the practice, you use a runtime image which could be very, very small to only have the binary and the runtime dependency. Uh, we use that way to to build the runtime um, image. Uh, but uh, for the build image, if you want to install all the dependency into a build image, it might take a long time. Um, at the beginning, I created a build image for our Python repo, which has a lot of PIP package dependency and also the Debian package dependency inside it. Uh, the image became five gigabytes. That's huge. And it takes 30 minutes to build. Um, so, um, and because of the model repo, um, the dependency can't be changed by any developer, randomly you don't know. Um, it causes a lot of complaints because other developers has to rebuild the image, uh, wait until 30 minutes, it's a huge waste. Uh, so we have to tackle this problem, special problem for the model repo. Uh, I, I plan um, um Python package in two a little bit because it doesn't have a good way to track the dependency like Maven or something. Um, that's better. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we have to take this problem and we used uh, some trick. Uh, the principle is split the bigger image in one giant bigger image into smaller uh, build image and uh, we we move the nest-changed uh, base image into a parent image for, for other child images, and we use makefile to manage the build order of them, and we use a special uh, way to tag the image, use the checksum of the dependencies. So uh, we have the scrip- script to calculate the checksum, and only the checksum change, it can, uh, it will pull or build the image locally. Uh, in that way, we reduced the build time. Most of most of most of them for um, into three minutes. So uh, it's okay for developer now. And uh, we are looking for another features which will be offered by Docker uh, 1.13, which is an option called cache from. So it can look up some cache from remote place rather than the local uh, local host which is awesome. I think probably we can average it uh, by building some cache image in remote, and all the developers can benefit from it uh, because it can pull from, uh, from other place. And, okay, that's an issue uh, we hit with ECR at the beginning. Um, mm, so we are, we were uh, rate-limited yeah, which is unfortunate. And uh, when we got our rate limited, basically all the instances cannot do the Docker build or Docker push, pull. So that's, uh, that's uh, a, that's a severe issue, actually. Uh, but, um, um, yeah, with the help of AWS support, we, uh, we nailed out the cause, uh, which is a uh, shell script, which keep running the AWS ECR get logging. Uh, in an infinite loop. Uh, so, <laughs> we stuck in there. And uh, uh, fortunately, from the cloud tail, we can find out the source, identified the instance, and, and uh, killed the uh, uh, shell script, then we got it resolved. Soon after, it, uh, we switched to a Chrome script running on every host uh, to execute this command, and uh, don't allow, or people to execute this get login command ad-hocly. Uh, we also leverage a uh, environment variable called docker underscore config uh, to make every host share one configuration file, uh, which, which get configured by the Chrome script. Uh, so uh, it works um, and prevents the issue happen again. But later, we found, I found another a uh, tool which is open sourced by AWS Labs, uh, which is a great tool, uh, built um, derived from the Docker credential helper. Um, basically, it uh, provides um, binary artifacts to be invoked by Docker engine ad-hocly whenever Docker engine needs to talk to a private registry. Um, so, yeah, the, the tool is built It is written in Golang and build a very tiny binary. If you drop the tiny binary into the user bin folder and uh, config the uh, docker config.json file um, to use it, then it will work like a charm. Um, It also has the the token cached, uh, so it won't uh, invoke too many requests to to the ECR. And the, and one thing to notice is uh, you have to put your, uh, uh, your own ECR URL into the config.json file. Otherwise, the Docker engine won't be able to find, uh, uh, find the parent image uh, in ECR if you use Docker command, Docker build command, um, which is a limitation of the Docker engine, actually, but yeah, it's easy to work around. Uh, Next. Uh, is a little bit uh, uh, experience with uh, the Mesos integration. So before the uh, Mesos version 1.0, it provided a URI as parameter. You can specify in your marathon task definition. Um, And in in that parameter, you can um, point a tar file which have your Docker configuration credentials in it. Uh, then in that way, uh, Marathon and Mesos can talk to the private ECR very well. Uh, and uh, since Mesos one version 1.0, we have the Docker-config options, uh, which uh, with with that config on each Mesos agent, you don't need to specify the uris parameter for each task. Um, yeah, and another interesting thing I'd like to mention is uh, um, the, unified containerizer, uh, which uh, is, uh, Mesos uh, community is actively working on. Uh, Basically, the Mesos unified containerizer can pull an image from the ECR without Docker daemon. It's a bold move, but uh, uh, I'm pretty excited about that because uh, you don't own, you, you you will only need one agent on the host, which is Mesos agent. You don't need to install Docker engine at all. But you can also, you can still benefit from, um, from the immunity, uh, immutable um, uh, artifacts um, from the Docker image. Uh, that's a good thing. And uh, actually, I wish ECS agent probably can support such similar things in the future. <laughs> okay. Um, Yes, that's all. Um, um, maybe final comments. Um, in Pinterest, obviously, uh, our Docker role is just started. We haven't uh, really worked on the orchestration, for example, the ECS integration or all or kinds of or scheduling issues uh, or deploying multiple, thing- multiple containers uh, at once using um, pods. Uh, all these... Uh, 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 issues are, are interesting and uh, we'd like to tackle. But, uh, yeah, that's the uh, next step for us. So, finally, uh, s- thanks for your attending. And I'm very happy here to share our story. And uh, obviously, I'm, I I already ran out of the time, <laughs> sorry. Um, so, if you have questions, I, I'm happy to answer it off the stage. Thank you.